Our first reading is in Luke chapter 8, which can be found on page 1043. That's Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, they met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. Um, sorry. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to uh, depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen this told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. 
when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and the villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. A number of years ago, a company very close to us here at St. Helens had a founder and CEO who was very strongly into Eastern spiritual philosophy, particularly feng shui. I'm not quite sure how much of this was his own personal conviction and quite how much he was seeking to appeal to Eastern markets. But the whole company was organized around the feng shui principle. There was a fish tank, tank in front uh, office divided into two sections. The intention is supposed to put in good, good vibes to have seven fish in one side and seven on the other, but there was disease in one and breeding on the other, so it was never quite right. And then there was furniture was organized appropriately and so forth. I met him socially, and he said to me, you must come to lunch, and I accepted. And so we went to the top floor of his company where he sat immediately opposite me like this with his COO, operations officer, CFO, financial officer on either side of him, and two of his other senior men either side of me. And as lunch was served, he asked the question, William, what do you make of my spiritual philosophy? What would you have said? What would you have said? I want us to see today that God drives forward his gospel into ungospeled regions through ascending church, a spoken ministry, and silenced superstition. We're at a key point in the book of Acts. This reading we've just had is the start of the fourth major section of the book. I, I describe them as each section as a panel. And each section comes to the close with the words similar to what you see in verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. Sometimes he says the church multiplied. Sometimes it's the word of God. But each panel closes like that. And from now on in the book of Acts, we find the apostle Paul to the fore and the Christian gospel penetrating into previously unchristianized regions. Now, this map was not put together by myself. It's far too attractive for that to be the case. Tim Shepard put it together. If you have a look at it, and you can see that we are in Antioch in our reading, top right, uh, if you're 
following these things, the northeast corner, and it's called Syrian Antioch because there are actually two Antiochs. There's another one confusingly in the middle of Turkey there. But from this point on, the Christian gospel is going to burst out of Syrian Antioch, cross into Cyprus, up into modern-day Turkey, and then much, much further afield. Originally, the church in Antioch was formed as a result of scattered, persecuted Christians who ended up there and found themselves speaking not only to Jewish people, but also to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And when we last visited Syrian Antioch, the non-Jewish Christians in the church had just taken up a collection in order to support the physical needs of the Jewish background believers in Jerusalem. This was a sign that the church in Syrian Antioch was a true part of the people of God. It was a radical thing to do for Gentiles to send money to Jews, like Ukrainians taking up a collection to help the poor in Russia, or the Rohingya refugees, Christians in Bangladesh, becoming Christians and sending back aid to the Christians in Myanmar. A really radical step. From our text now in chapter 13, you can see we have now a number of teachers in the church in Antioch. So they are Barnabas, originally a man from Cyprus, Simeon, clearly an African, Niger in Latin means black, he was a man of color, Lucius from the North African coast, Cyrene in modern-day Libya, Manane, you see him there, a member of the court of Herod, he was the posh bloke, Saul, I assume, I don't know, it may not have been, Saul, originally from southeastern Turkey, Tarsus. And John Mark, who'd come up from Jerusalem, was the son of the woman in whose house the early church met there in Jerusalem. Already we've seen the church in Syria and Antioch making godly decisions in response to their Christian faith as they put their hands in their pockets and sent money to aid the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. But now we see these leaders of the church coming together prayerfully under God's word to consider the advance of the gospel. And the decision they take in verses 1 through 3 changes the course of Western history. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the they who were worshiping and fasting most naturally refers to the six named leaders of the church, Barnabas and Saul, Manane, Lucius, Simeon, and the other guy. Some unhelpfully suggest that the worship implies that they were in a meeting of this kind in which we find ourselves now. I find that entirely implausible because they were fasting. Does that mean they fasted for just an hour and a quarter and then went home? Not much of a fast. It looks like these leaders had determined to fast and pray and to seek God's wisdom for the way ahead for the gospel. 
Their worship most likely consisted of studying God's word carefully and prayerfully and responding in prayer. It's to do with the Greek word that is used there, which is pretty much always used in the New Testament for God's word and the teaching of it. And that's altogether reasonable. They were, after all, Bible teachers. And it seems that they therefore came together prayerfully and carefully, weighing the scriptures, and in that context of prayerful seeking of the Lord's will, they came to a decision. So, Luke records, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Personally, I don't think the Holy Spirit spoke verbally to them. Elsewhere in Luke, Acts refers to a decision taken in this sort of way, quite kind of normally, as it were, and then later refers to it and says, the Holy Spirit said. So the decision taken was to recognize the work that God had already set Paul apart for and thus sent him out. And I expect that Saul argued his corner pretty forcefully in the meeting. Look, when I became a Christian, it was said specifically of me that I was the apostle to the Gentiles and that God was going to send me out to the previously unchristianized nations, you can imagine Paul saying. Look, that's what the Bible says should happen to the Christian gospel. Jesus is Lord of all. The gospel should go to the ends of the earth, you can imagine Paul saying. And so it is recorded as the Holy Spirit directing them to send Paul out. And as I say, this verse is one of the most significant moments in global history. If you've read Tom Holland or listened to Jordan Peterson or in fact studied history in any way seriously, then you will know that the Christian faith has had more impact on Western society than any other. And this is the first step, if you like, of the advance of the Christian gospel into the unchristianized world. It's, of course, a one-off. We're reading of a key moment in the history of the church. It's the moment when the dam bursts or the tide turns or the tornado advances. But I want to suggest that this pattern of God forming a sending church, descriptive as it is, demonstrates the way in which God advances the gospel across the world. We see it repeated again and again and again. The church of God taught the word of God, seeing the plan of God, and then sacrificially sending men and women out across the world. Tim, very sensibly, when he did this map, had three large circles to represent three of the biggest churches who engaged in this kind of work in the first century. There you've got Jerusalem. Head north, there you've got Antioch. Head way out west, there you've got Ephesus. And these became key foundational centers for the advance of the Christian gospel. And over history, that has been the way the gospel has advanced. You know, when I was sitting in St. Helens, where you are 
back in the 1980s. I know that makes me sound like a bit of an old dodderer, but when I was, um, it was St. Matthias in, uh, in Sydney that was a key sending center impacting whole areas with the Christian gospel. And many who had sat in those seats prior to me would have looked across to All Souls Langham Place, which had had such an impact as people prayerfully and carefully considered how sacrificially they were going to send people out across the world. Today, you might name Redeemer in New York, The Crossing in Singapore. But as I've thought about it, in a sense, every church has the Word of God. Every church under the Word of God, having the Word taught, knows that it's God's purpose for the Christian gospel to advance into previously unchristianized regions and areas. And in a sense, therefore, this is the business of every church. I think I'd want to say that's what our church council is about. Those of you who are on the church, how we have to do various rather petty things, like organizing the money and that sort of stuff. But the real stuff we're about is seeing the advance of the Christian gospel. And when we gather to pray on a Monday night in two weeks' time, that's what we're really about. We're going to hear about some of the young ones who are starting Christian works in their schools. That's the sort of thing we're praying about. The Holy Spirit advancing the gospel into previously uncharted territory. It's absolutely glorious to see. And the impact of a church under God's leading as prayerfully we consider the work of God and sacrificially send people, well, it's extraordinary. But it's not simply the sending church that God creates. He also deploys what I'm calling a speaking ministry. And I hope you'll forgive me using that kind of language. I'm going to read verses 4 through 12. And as I do so, what is it that God used for the conversion of Sergius Paulus and for the advance of the Christian gospel in Cyprus. Ask yourself that as I read it. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, already we've had prophets and teachers in our passage today. We saw that in verse 1. The, word, the work of prophecy in the book of Acts is almost exclusively that of forth-telling what God has already revealed. 
speaking about the revelation that God has given in and through Jesus Christ. On two, possibly three occasions, we find prophets foretelling, that is speaking about the future. But in the book of Acts, men and women, boys and girls, are those who tell out what Jesus has revealed already about God. And in the book of Acts, in that sense, every single one of us is a believer. Every believer becomes a prophet. Certainly that's what Paul says in Acts chapter 2. Your young men and old men will prophesy, as will your servants, girls, and children. Men and women, boys and girls, all the people of God, forth-telling the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. So that when a five-year-old from a Christian home goes to stay with her non-Christian granny and over tea says, oh, granny, don't you believe in Jesus? She's forthtelling. She's a prophet. And when a nanny has, ha- has happened here in the city with their high-flying city employer over whatever they were doing together, sees the employer in difficulty and says, do you not know Jesus? Won't you pray to him? She is forthtelling, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, there are others with a specific responsibility to speak and to teach. People like Paul, Barnabas, Simeon, Manain, and Lucius. And as Saul heads into Cyprus, he teaches He speaks with Sergius, Paulus, one-to-one. He reasons, he dialogues, he explains. All of this is what is involved in preaching. Not just sustained monologue, as I am doing now. None of you have interrupted me yet. Not just sustained monologue, but one-to-one work. Small group work. Dialogue and discussion work. That is all in the book of Acts. Prophesying, preaching, teaching. And so Jesus drives forward the advance of his gospel into this previously uncharted territory, yes, through the sending church, but then through the spoken ministry of the word, heralding formally in the synagogue, discussing more generally, teaching in a more detailed way, one-to-one explanation and exhortation. Why do I labor this? We need to be clear what this ministry is that advances the Christian gospel. All of us playing the part of prophets. Specific individuals with particular gifts then exercising their gift of prophecy, as I hope I'm doing now, and instruction and teaching. There are many things that the Word of God produces a prayerful church, community, Social care, mission, a church planting movement, prayer. They're all in this passage. But it's the ministry of the word that produces these things. And so I have been absolutely adamant, as has been my predecessor here at St. Helens, that we don't make the thing that the word produces our focus, but the word itself And then the word will produce what the word produces in all these variety of things. Major on something that the word produces, let's say community, 
And you might necessarily have a Christian community. You can find community anywhere. The golf club has a community. Uh, I spoke over at Dirty Dicks where there's a, a lunchtime meeting on Thursday and there were a group of German footballers over for the Tottenham match on Thursday singing upstairs. They were a community. I couldn't say they were in any sense a Christian community. The question is, will it be Christian? It will only be Christian if you teach the word. Okay, finally, what we see God doing or Jesus doing is silencing superstition. Now, these verses show us one instance of what this speaking ministry commissioned by the sending church looks like as it enters Gentile territory, previously unimpacted by Christian teaching. It's there, verses 6 to 8. When they'd gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish, came across a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, also called Elimas. He was with the proconsul, proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But the magician opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, quite what Bar-Jesus did or believed, we're not told. We are told that he's a magician. He appears to be some sort of court wizard employed or retained by Sergius Paulus, who himself was, had a fascination with superstition and occult practices. Bar Jesus' bag seems to be a mixture of false ideas and philosophy. He deceives and makes crooked, together probably with occult practice. But clearly Bar-Jesus, or Elemas, finds Paul a threat to his prestige and his livelihood. Somebody else has come into the court. Uh, Sergius Paulus seems to be paying more attention to him. Bar-Jesus looks like he's about to be turfed out on his ear, which he is. The Old Testament is full of such individuals. Think of the magicians in Pharaoh's court, or Balaam in the book of Numbers, the astrologers in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. I like to think they were the management consultants of their day. But in verses 9 to 11, Bar-Jesus is silenced and struck blind. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now, that's a really interesting description, isn't it? Interesting because clearly he must be doing some teaching in it all. It's not all magic tricks. And that, I think, helps us to understand Bar-Jesus a little bit more carefully. If it was just hocus-pocus and, you know, Hogwarts School of uh, Witchcraft and all the rest of it, we would think he was an absolute weirdo. But there must be some sort of Jewish teaching in here that is making crooked the way of the Lord. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul in action here. This is not you and me. It's not every believer. Please don't head into school assembly tomorrow. And as the head starts to spout some superstitious nonsense, like all religions leaving the same, please don't stand up and say to him, you son of the devil or her, an enemy of all unrighteousness. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and it's a groundbreaking moment in the history of the church. But note that he is crystal clear 
that whatever the teaching, any teaching that makes crooked the way of the Lord is the work of the devil because of its aim, anything that obstructs the advance of the Christian gospel is demonic, even if it might clothe itself in the garb of an HR department, that he is described as the enemy of all righteousness, of course, because if you prevent the truth of Jesus Christ coming into the office, you are the enemy of truth and of righteousness, and that he's full of deceit and cunning. And the word used for deceit is bait on a trap. Cunning is misinterpretation. And what Elemas does is to present his teaching and thinking with great sophistication and care so that it's plausible and acceptable to an intelligent man like Sergius Paulus. And he makes crooked the straight path of the Lord, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith, kicking up dust, if you like, obscuring, carefully presenting false arguments, diverting Sergius Paulus's thinking. Now, this gives us a very good understanding of the sort of thing we are to expect as the Christian gospel heads into previously unchristianized regions. It's striking that this is to be found in the very center of the regional power. He was the proconsul in the boardroom, amongst the hospital managers, in the corridors of power, in the senior common room, in the staff room. No doubt it looked very civilized and upright and correct, but as the Christian gospel advances, it meets such embedded ideologies that have shaped cultural practice and are, in effect, superstitious mumbo-jumbo. And yet Sergius Paulus, who is intelligent, and intelligent means he's able to put his thoughts in a straight line, has been taken in by it. Now, I thought, well, the, the most obvious place to go first is to our mission partners. And so I sent out a couple of emails to our mission partners this week and asked them the kind of superstition that they come across in their cultures. Here is Joel Kenny in Cambodia. Every village has its own witch doctor who declare that the spirits have told them no one is allowed to eat that year a particular fruit of some sort, pumpkin, banana, cucumber. It then becomes a forbidden fruit for that year. People eating or storing that food in their homes need to pay a fine or make a sacrifice, animal, not human. If a villager even sees that fruit or vegetable, like, for example, I get a banana out of my bag for a quick snack, fear spreads over their faces, like I've just pulled a knife on them. Married couples aren't allowed to have a baby within the first year of marriage. If they do, again, it's a fine, a sacrifice demanded of them. This recently happened to a newly married Christian couple. They refused to make a sacrifice. It's caused them huge stress and heartache with their non-believing families, village chief, neighbors. They stood their ground. She goes on with a number of other incidents of that sort 
including news of Jimpy, her dog. I was asking after Jimpy's health. Jimpy, you'll be glad to know, is still alive. Nigeria. Whenever there is a sickness or death, there must be someone who's caused it using evil powers. A witch can steal someone's soul and turn it into a physical animal, then slaughter the animal, leading to the death of the actual person. They can give the meat to someone else to eat. The witch can then steal that person's soul. Animals have multiple births, humans don't. If twins are born, one of them must not be a human. It is abandoned. So we think to ourselves, well, this sort of superstition, oh, it's not our bag at all. We don't come across this. After all, we're modern people. But the nature of superstition will vary depending on the previous development of that culture. Greek and Roman world, the pantheon of the classical gods. Eastern religion, any number of myths. I remember a parent of a child at school on the touchline telling me that they'd named their child such and such a name. I said, what an interesting name. Where did that name come from? And he told me a long story about this God who'd gone out, child who'd gone into the forest and met a God in the form of a giraffe who'd then done this, that, and the other with him, and therefore they called the child that after that, that, um, that child's name. I said, well, do you believe that actually happened? No, but no, of course we don't believe that. Pure superstition and myth. Islam the same. But in previously Christianized cultures, of course, we're unlikely to come across quite such superstition. We will find other superstition, however. And one such superstition will be that everything we see and touch and feel emerged from nowhere without previous cause. Which, when you actually stop and ponder it, is pure superstition that something can come from nothing. It is absurd. The superstitious like to kick up dust and show us that, of course, this is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And so you get somebody like the late Professor Stephen Hawking. Because there is a law such as gravity, therefore the universe can create itself from nothing. To which our friend Professor John Lennox responds, nonsense remains nonsense even when talked by world-famous scientists. Now, this is such a helpful passage, isn't it? Because it shows us how the gospel advanced into previously unchristianized territory and what to expect. May I say, there may be some of us in this room who ourselves have been exposed to some of these horrible superstitions, which are satanic and binding, the kind, I mean, in terms of evil spirits and so forth, horrible, and you can live in fear. And Jesus frees us from that because he has conquered Satan. He delivers us from the demonic. He's freed us. It's wonderful. But all of us have lived in a post-Christianized environment in this country, where many of those ideas have been pushed to one side, but fresh superstitions have emerged, such as something can come from nothing without previous cause. Nonsense remains nonsense, even when spoken by world-famous scientists. And so let's return to where we started. Uh, we've seen that the gospel advances through 
sending churches that God raises up through the spoken word that God commissions and through the silencing of superstition. There I was, CEO sitting opposite me. I was a much younger man in those days, CEO, CFO, and then either side of me, two other senior flunkies uh, as well. What do you think of my spiritual philosophy? What would you have said? Well, I'm not the Apostle Paul, so I didn't say to him, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness. But I did say to him, it doesn't surprise me that in a nation where we are turning increasingly away from the living God, superstitious practice advances more and more and can be found even in boardrooms of FTSE companies. And there we enjoyed the rest of our lunch. Now, shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for liberating us from some of these ghastly superstitions that we've just been hearing about from our mission partners. We pray for them that you would enable them to speak the truth of Jesus Christ who has conquered all evil and speak it plainly and boldly so that many men and women, boys and girls, can be freed from the ghastly, life-ruining powers of superstition. We pray for ourselves, Father, that you would grant to us courage to speak and for us as a whole church that you would enable us to continue sending brothers and sisters, new church plants, mission partners across the globe to your praise and glory. Amen.